Welcome to Presence by Naki O. I am your host, Naki Osute, and I'm thrilled that you are here. This is episode two, season one. Staying Black on Bay Street is the thematic for this season. And we're talking about the experiences of Black people who are working in corporations, organizations, institutions of all kinds. But rather than the popular discourse, which is usually about Black people leaving, this season is about what it takes to stay. This episode called Super Tokens and Cluster Hires, we are speaking with Dean Dory Tunstall, the only Black Dean of a Faculty of Design anywhere in the world, at least at the time of this recording. And we're talking about her experience as a super token, if you will. One of the incredible projects she's been working on is the Black Cluster Hire. And this has been a multi-year effort that has, that has engaged the institution as a whole, but has really been inspired by the work of her colleagues, Andrea Fotona and Lillian Allen. This has been an effort to really rectify what Dean Dory calls 144 years of neglect and underrepresentation at the institution. I also speak with HR consultant Stacy Hilton to get a sense of the viability of the cluster hire approach in, co- in other corporate settings. Lastly, I speak to Keston Cornwall, one of the professors hired through the cluster hire. I'm so excited for you to listen to this episode. I look forward to your feedback. Hit me up on Twitter or IG at Presence by Naki O. Enjoy the show. The problem with with design and many other fields is right is that they're based on. <laughs> uh, a, a, let me put it diplomatically at first, right? They're based on kind of assumptions that the ideal person for whom they're designing is white, male, um, cisgendered, um, that they are middle class or fluent, that they are heterosexual, that they are Christian, that they're all these, uh, you know, of um, without any physical or cognitive disability. And so in design, like the model of that um, tends to be some Swiss European designer. Yes. Which means their aesthetics, their worldview is defined as the standard of what you're supposed to be in design. And so from coming from a decolonial approach is to, um, in many ways, dismantle that to say that there's many traditions of designing that come from the places you are from, you know. Um, so unpacking design's role in colonization, but also saying you have your own heritage from which you can draw inspiration, that it doesn't need to be this European um, person that you aspire to, but it could be like um, your abuela, (laughs) your grandmother, and the aesthetics that she presented to you um, as as something you can draw your design inspiration for, from, right? So in the work, which is Which is so important insofar as recognizing different ways of knowing, right? Exactly, exactly. And that's really what it's about, is just recognizing different ways of knowing, different ways of being, and then recentering those differences as possibilities for um, how, particularly young people, how they can be in the world, what they can do professionally. On June 5th, when I saw the announcement, 
your announcement came out at a time where corporations were all putting out their statements uh -huh. of solidarity. You know, we, we stand with black communities, we're going to do better, et cetera, et cetera. And OCAD said, oh, I see your, I see your announcements and I raise you five times. <laughs> How about that? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that was, you know, because people, people don't realize like, you know, that that process was like a year and a half before yeah. the announcement came out, right? So in some ways, we were, we've been doing that work for, I mean, a relatively long time in the span of everyone's black squares, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we actually had a little bit of trepidation about, because that was when we were just going to do the announcement. It's not like we did the announcement because we, we were going to do the announcement then because the every, all of the faculty had signed their contracts, which is when you can only do the announcement. So mm -hmm. it was one of those things. The timing was such that we, um, we had to think very carefully about how we wanted to announce it. Um, that this is all about institutions failing black people by design institutions yeah. failing by design so for me it was being able to say uh, in this real feeling of despair like there were real days of despair that there is the possibility for a 144 year old institution to begin to make amends and change which means all of you other institutions who are mired in your 150 plus years or even less years of ignoring the needs and desires and aspirations of black people, you can change. You can change. And um, I, think, I think that's so, I think it's so um, inspiring and it, it elicits a level of optimism, whether it's a cautious optimism, I guess that doesn't matter. It's, it's just some optimism. And so I really would love to hear you help us understand how that came to be. You know, mm -hmm. one, of, one of the things that I've heard you talk about is the need for organizations to make amends. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could, and I suspect that that would have been part of the starting point for this cluster hire as well as the fact that, you know, you yourself are in a position of significant leadership in the organization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just wonder if you could speak a little bit about how the confluence of those factors come together to get to this point. Yeah. Um, I mean, OCAD University had like an externally driven reckoning, right? So there was, a previous faculty uh, member who brought the institution to the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal. Mm. Coming out of that, the institution did um, President Sarah Diamond, um, co-led co by Camille um, Isaacs, did the um, President's Task Force on Underrepresentation. So this is where they begin to gather the data to understand how deep the underrepresentation was, but also to get a sense of what the um, the faculty and staff of OCAD wanted and needed to to make amends <laughs> to make amends. Mm -hmm. So with that reckoning, um, there was openness um, by the institution to reflect upon itself and to make change. 
Um, the black cluster hire would not be possible without first having the indigenous cluster hire. Right. Um, and that for me is a key principle. Like I still, one of the things that I find a little worrying about um, the discourse and the focus on blackness is that it's sometimes, um, it, sometimes it's part of that erasure of indigenous issues mm. um, and indigenous concerns. And I'm, feel really sensitive to it because again like the indigenous community has been so amazingly supportive yes. um of black lives matter and 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 in some ways i feel like as a black community we may not have show always the same level of support um for indigenous issues or it's something i feel very sensitive to um yeah, and I think as should, well as, i think we should be i agree with you um, and so with the Indigenous cluster hire, we knew, first of all, it was possible to do a cluster hire. We knew that some of the assumptions around um, there not being a pipeline, like, didn't make any sense because we had so many people apply for those, that, that Indigenous cluster hire position. Hmm. Um, uh, and so, and we also began to experiment with the language in which we make the call to communities to respond to um, that we want to bring their lived experience in our institution. We don't just want like a, you know, a painter. We want um, someone who has like an indigenous worldview, right, and bring that into the institution. So from that, we knew, or at least I knew, that we could confidently go into a black cluster hire um, because we had tested out the format so to, and the process. Um, but also, again, I knew that I knew the language to write the call. I knew what needed to be changed, like what things we hadn't done in the Indigenous cluster hire around actually changing the criteria of evaluation um, in terms of equivalencies. So in the Black cluster hire, I was able to to do those things, to write the job description in a way that um, recognize the key aspects of like contemporary black culture mm. um, around, you know, Afro, um, Afrofuturism, hip hop aesthetics, all these sort of things that I knew we could call to those things and not just look for another interaction designer, right? Um, so the Black Cluster Hire in the context of OCAT was less risky because we had the Indigenous Cluster Hire, but the institution still saw it um, in many ways as a risk. And, and I think that's where the leadership aspect comes into play because there was a lot of effort that I and others like Lillian Allen <laughs> in the institution had to, had to do to convince the institution um, that there was less risk in doing this than they thought. So risk is just such a ubiquitous term in corporate settings. So when I spoke with Stacey Hilton about the viability of the Black cluster hire approach in corporate environments, I was expecting her to say, not, not happening, too risky. But that wasn't quite her response. So, and this is just based on past experience, past views, um, that I, I just I just don't know if organizations are really ready and really prepared to do the work that would be entailed to do the cluster hiring. Like I think 
some organizations or from a corporate lens may feel that if we do the cluster hiring, then we're good. Like if we just hire, you know, if we say a target of where we're going to hire 10, you know, black individuals across these particular groups, we're done. But it doesn't stop there. And I think if I tie it back to my experience being in the rotational program and, you know, whether that was an intent to ensure that there was representation in in those programs, it fell short after the program. Mm. So the continual focus on ensuring that these particular talent is incubated and developed and given opportunities, it fell short mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in that regard. So I think organizations may be willing to do that initial, you know, let's hire five, let's hire seven, whatever the target number is for the organization. But I, I, I'm concerned on their ability to actually follow through with what, what that means in order to actually see the benefits and see the, um, the return on investment of actually doing that. I give, I give OCAD University so much credit in terms of um, really being open to listening to its leadership um, and me and others um, and taking in some ways, like I, I, you know, my job is to push in many ways the institution outside of its comfort zones, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because that's what they asked for when they asked for a dean who could help facilitate decolonization and indigenous um, vitalization. I think that was the term they were using then. Um, but it also, it's a lot of, it's very risky when you bring that person in and you see that they actually really mean to do that. And then you begin to support them um, in trying to do that by literally shifting the institution, shifting the way we hire, working closely with HR, working closely with the Office of Diversity and Equity to make sure that we're on the right side of the law, so to speak. Um, working really closely in terms of training the faculty. Like the thing that worries me with a lot of the, let's say, enthusiasm to hire black that's happening now mm-hmm. is that to prepare our community at OCAD, which is still in some way like 80% white, to prepare our community, we, we had to do an entire year of anti-racism, anti-oppression training. Yeah. Um, and that was on top of previous years where we had to do indigenous cultural competency training. So in many ways, like the, when I asked the faculty if they wanted to do the black cluster hire now, like they were like, yeah, of course it's time. <laughs> but it took a lot of work to be able, you know, like three solid years of work to be able to get our community at a place where they're like, of course, it is time to make this happen now. And, you know, and the great competition that happened among the many programs to be able to have um, our black faculty, you know, in their programs to be able to support their students. Um, And that's the part I think, again, a lot of institutions are not quite thinking about when how much work it's going to take to prepare the institution to really bring in people in such a way that they're not, um, that they can retain them, right? That they don't want to leave because the institution is really hostile to, still very hostile to them bringing their full selves into it. In this particular moment that we're in, I find that to be a really important 
question to consider because on one hand, there's a lot of external pressure from communities of color, black communities in particular, indigenous communities as well, who are saying, we've been waiting for this change. We've asked you in a hundred different ways for this change and we wanna see it now. And so for some institutions, there's this reactive, there's a, there's a, there's a leaning into, okay, well, we have to react, we've gotta do something. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes there's a fear that to say we're going to go through a three-year process of preparing our institution won't be perceived as enough. And so I think there's an inclination to say, well, we have to make a dramatic change right now in order to appease. You know, like part of why it took three years or so to prepare is that there wasn't a critical mass. Like, you know, again, previous to to the Black Cluster hire, we had four um, Black faculty in the Faculty of Liberal Arts and only one in the faculty of art and zero in the faculty of design right and so in that sense um there you know that when you have critical mass you have enough people who would be in the meetings to bring those perspectives to bear that shift and influence the kinds of discussions that are happening in you know, at different levels of the institution. You know, these consultants, like we brought in uh, Kika Ojo, um, you bring in these consultants because there's not enough people within the community itself to help share those perspectives with the rest of the community, right? Um, so, so it's a thing where like, if you're, if you're still gonna do, um, if you're only able to do, let's say, um, one or two hires, you know, per year, um, then you'll need, again, they are still tokenistically placed in the institution and you need the rest of the community to do that work so that they don't inflict harm on that individual. Mm-hmm. When you bring in a group of people, they'll need to do that training, <laughs> right? They'll need to do that training. But again, the, 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 their experience of being able to rely on each other, build, take confidence from each other is much greater. But also, again, they are able to model the kinds of uh, differences, let's say differences between Blackness and all these sort of things that um, lead to the kind of microaggressions that, let's say, an individual will suffer um, because they're the only one or mainly the only one um and thus they have to carry the entire burden of the entire race Mm -hmm. that burden of representation i want to i do want to talk about sort of the super token yeah because you know the statement that follows the name dean dory tunstall is only black dean of design in the world Mm One of the things I try to explain to people is that like, in some ways, like my presence, let's say as Dean of Design at OCAD University is by design. And what I mean by that is that there has been so many people within my community and outside my community who have prepared me, trained me, given me opportunities um, to, to accumulate in some ways 
all of the markers of success within the system that we have established, which is again, basically, you know, based on white supremacy, <laughs> to be clear, right? And so, um, so the super token, again, it's like, there's always individuals, and, and again, you talk about Barack Obama, not to say that we're in the same class, but you talk about, there's always these individuals who are allowed to because they're so talented in some particular way that the institutions want them that are allowed to slip through right mm -hmm. um now the thing is is that they have to excel beyond the system so they're not allowed to be mediocre in any way shape or form and that's part of the racism in the system is that they're not allowed to be mediocre mm -hmm. um and in some cases, what becomes dangerous is that they really are meant to be used as a token in the sense of saying, um, we, look, we have this one, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah. we don't need any others because we have this one, right? Or more insidiously, they're like, oh yeah, we'll let you in as long as you have the same quote unquote markers of achievement as this individual, right? Um, so as a super token, in some ways, it's really hard because, um, like, like again, so many people have invested their love, care, knowledge, understanding of how systems work for me to be able to navigate them um, in the way that I have. Mm. And so, and they do so with the expectation that you are open, that you will get there and you will open up possibilities for others, yeah. right? Um, and so the thing is that, you know, if you recognize that that's your super token, um, is to not be comfortable in the fact that you're the only one in the room, um, and not to fall into the ideal of that only the other amazingly, super amazing, accomplished in a very narrow sense of individuals. Uh, could only stand beside you in the room if they do mm. allow you to be in the room, you know, that you actually have to dismantle the system mm -hmm. so that the whole notion of who's allowed in the room changes. Like for me, I say we will achieve true equality when, um, when the most mediocre, quote unquote, mediocre <laughs> black folk are mm. able to get into positions where clearly there's mediocre white folks <laughs> working in those same positions, right? Um, and we're not there yet. I mean, one of the things that as amazing as like the Black North initiative is and it's going to be, mm. it's still in some ways creating space for super tokens mm. to be able to get into the these positions of power and influence in these different, you know, 250 Canadian top institutions and organizations and again that needs to happen yeah. but if those people who do get into those institutions if their first job is not dismantling that system in which you only can have a law degree from u of t <laughs> to be able to get into that 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 job then we're not we're not creating the context for real racial and social and economic justice for black folks, right? As a group of people. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, I'm always hyper aware of the fact that 
Um, I carry, I carry a community with me into the room. Yes. And the only way in which the pressure of that is going to be released is if I bring other people from the community into that room with me. Yeah. And they have to be different from who I am. Like when we did the Black Cluster Hire, I told the committee, I am not the model of what we want to bring. If, we, if we're only hiring someone who has the kind of profile that I have as a profile, we have failed. Forget it. We have failed. I actually want to jump back to the hires for just a quick second sure. to ask you about the redesigning of qualifications. Mm -hmm. Because I, you know, when we think about how structural racism works, so much of it is because of the model that you described earlier around creating these spaces optimized for a particular type of person. Mm -hmm. And so can you talk about what, or maybe even more practically, a couple of examples of how yeah. I mean, I can, I mean, what, what, what we did, and like I said, we learned this from the Indigenous cluster hire in terms of like the kinds of people that our own process excluded, mm -hmm. um, that we needed to define in some ways a set of equivalencies. And the equivalencies was based on the understanding that, okay, in academia, we have a model, like you're an academic, you've had two years teaching at some post-secondary institution before, you've gone off and you do a lot of conference presentations and you write journal articles. <laughs> um, you Like we have a model, right, that our qualifications are written around, but if you've been systemically excluded from post-secondary as a sector, like you're not gonna have any of those quote unquote accomplishments, like not in that way. And so what we, what we did and what I codified in some ways is saying, okay, you can have, let's say at least two other different models. Let's say if you didn't go the post-secondary route, what are other ways in which you would achieve? For some people, it's about the, the we call it like the praxis um, star. So you've um, put all your energy into like a professional career, mm -hmm. right? Which means you've done similar stuff, like instead of giving a conference presentation, you might have given an industry talk. Yeah. Instead of like um, writing a journal article or something, you've, um, you've you know, written up your work so that, you know, it could be disseminated to others to learn from it. You know, there's a way in which you've done equivalent things. It's just in a different sphere. Mm -hmm. And then for others, they're like community engaged. So again, you may not have a, you know, a tri-council grant, but you definitely had to write a grant, you know, an Ontario Black Youth Action Plan grant in order to fund your community organization, right? Or you may have had to, um, again, you've given workshops to youth um, or adults, which is just the transfer of knowledge, which we're expecting you to do if you came into the post-secondary sector, right? So we call that like the community connector. So we established that outside of this academic profile that we have, that there are areas of black excellence that, that for those who again, were excluded from post-secondary, they still found a way to shine. Love and it. they found a way to shine in these other ways. And we want to bring those people into our institutions as well, because what we wanna be able to do is to show our students Guess what? There's many different ways you can shine. 
right? There's many different ways you can shine, but also embrace the knowledge and experience that they bring into this post-secondary um, sector itself in recognition of, oh, we messed up by excluding you <laughs> from achieving in this space, right? It was so great to hear from recently hired OCAD U professor, Keston Cornwall. He spoke about his experience considering the cluster hire opportunity, interviewing for it, and then waiting to hear back. I'll warn you, the audio is a little rough here, but the content, the content is magic. I'm going to be honest, I, I went all in. I'm talking like, mm-hmm. like there were nights where I was up till 4 a.m. Just, just writing and reading rewording, um, coming up with different ideas, concepts, trying to, uh, trying to put me and what I saw and what I envisioned into text so that people could understand it. And it was not an easy task. It's hard. It was hard. And I was working another job at the time and I had like a, a show that was coming up. Oh my gosh. It was like, it was madness. So, and I, and they, it, because COVID hit too. So COVID hit, so I think there was a delay in their response. So I was like just waiting, and I was like, at a point, I was like, well, if it happens, great. If it doesn't, I'm gonna keep. I might, I'll apply for another position. You know, like I was. There was a waiting period. When so I got the call. It was good. It was, I was, I was happy. Before I want, I want to hear about the moment you got the call in a second, but I wanted to ask when you saw the job posting, did they mention they were trying to hire five? Black yeah. professors. It was, okay. it was like the largest, most bold part of it. But then they broke down what they were looking for, and I was really like, even though that part kind of, I, I looked at it with two perspectives. Um, the rest of it, I only, I just saw nothing but greatness because they were, they were asking for things I thought universities always needed. Mm. Uh, not only universities, colleges as well. So the institution that I went to. Uh, and and people that I have worked with within the field, a lot of times there's, people can pull and learn things from two different types of people. One is the academic, who's kind of very well read, Mm -hmm. has gone through the institution process and extremely knowledgeable in that aspect. People can also learn from the grassroots, made a bunch of different steps, different turns, went through the mud. And when you put those two things together, there's a real value to it. Um, and that they somehow, and I would have to have the text in front of me, somehow they put that into word. Wow. I, I'd actually, I, I, that, was, that, that was the note that I just wrote. Ask yeah. Dory for the original job description. <laughs> to see it. Yeah, it's a good, it was, um, even though at first, like you almost want that in a way because it catches the person's attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, the main text was jarring. It was like, wait a second, like, what is, like, what is this, you know? And then they kind of break down what it is throughout the job posting, so. Um, and yeah, and, and did you, were you familiar with Dean Dory before you applied? I was in a way. Okay, tell me about that. So in Toronto, the art industry is, is very small. When there's big change, people hear about it. And Dory coming into OCAD was a big change. People heard about it. So I knew that OCAD had hired its first female black dean. I knew that. And, um, and you knew that she was the only black dean of a design faculty in the world. I did not know that, but I knew there were not many. Right. Like if I were at the time to have guessed, I would have guessed under 10. 
yeah. to, to realize that it's, it's she's like the only one is, is mind-blowing and also inspiring and knowing Dory and having gone through interviews with her um she's going to by doing what she's doing she's going to pull other people into similar positions mm. like that's the type of energy that Dory has she's mm-hmm. just this she's a, she has a, a very unique way of handling people delivering information and organizing things in her brain because when you talk to her her delivery on things is unique and it's, it's exactly <laughs> what it needs to be yeah for what she's doing because yeah. it's a very complex and difficult task because she's managing almost two she's managing a million things but if you were to simplify it she's a manager of of the faculty of design but then you add this other aspect and it makes it even more of a complex um image i think in pictures so now we're moving into our second segment, a nonsense. And this is the segment where I ask my guests to share what's happening around them that they would count as sheer nonsense. It takes me back to my childhood when I would hear my aunts and uncles speaking with my parents and they'd be talking about the news of the day. And inevitably some topic would come up that would make them clap their hands and say, hey, this is nonsense. So I asked Dean Dory, what is nonsense to her today? As nonsense, what needs to be recognized is the um, decisions to not defund or abolish the police. Mm. Like, you know, at the height of the protests that were happening in Toronto, there was an opportunity um for a change right in terms of how the police were funded um and the fact that that didn't happen to me was like one of those moments of nonsense nonsense um because again it's like the data is there the social movement is there. All that is really needed is kind of the political will to recognize that in some ways you represent everyone. Mm. Um, and, and that if you're a really, what a really good leader does is actually try to represent the most vulnerable. Mm right, to to create the conditions in which the most vulnerable are able to flourish um, in in wherever they are, right, in the city. And so for me, that was just one of those moments where, again, everything is there for you to, to make the right decision. And again, many of the people who are meant to represent us wasn't able to make that decision. And it's heartbreaking because we know the consequences of that for our Black folks, for our Indigenous folks, for our POC folks, um, is life and death, right? Um, Which is more than the security of property, which is what probably drove that decision making from from those who have voted against making that change.
And the final segment you better recognize, I ask my guests to share something or someone they want to celebrate. Here's Dory's. Okay, well, someone who's really impressing me right, right now is actually um, uh, Julian Lutz, or PKA Director X. Mm-hmm. And it, it's mm-hmm. mostly like, um, like, you know, I always, like, I'm not a big celebrity kind of person. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I've been really impressed about is the way in which he's been using his platform to not even like tell people what to do. I mean, some of us tell people what to do, but get <laughs> yeah. people to really, to get people to really think, right? Um, so whether it's, um, you know, the, the gun violence um, and his Operation Prefrontal Cortex, um, but again, he's like hitting people with facts. He's hitting people with the, um, you know, the programs at work. And he's using his platform and using his quote unquote celebrity in such a way to amplify that message in a way that um, once at one hand recognizes the grassroots organizations that have been doing this work for thousands and thousands of years, it feels, or at least, you know, goes that uh, way. Yeah. hundreds of years. Um, but at the same time, understanding like, you know, the media, where the media is going to go and what they're going to listen to and thus be able to amplify, but also shine a light on those um, other initiatives who've been doing the work and having like the Instagram chats with all the oh, yeah. people who are disagreeing or, or and, and all arguing them down, right? Mm-hmm. 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 So for me, like, it's a thing where, like I, like I said, I generally don't follow celebrity, um, but I've been really fascinated in some ways around the way in which he's used his platform to really, to really bring about change, right? Mm-hmm. And he's on the, like, again, I'm on the Toronto, um, the Toronto, City of Toronto Economic and Cultural um, uh, recovery advisory group hmm. and he's on that as well and so again it's a thing where he's like he's not just making the press interviews he's sitting in on those meetings that happen every once a month and and sort of doing that policy work as well and it's rare it's it, i think i think what you're recognizing is also um how rare it is for for a person of his quote-unquote celebrity to take the time to be invested in activities happening in his hometown um, and then and then to use this to use his platform considering the kinds of people who are um, who follow him to use his mm-hmm. platform in the ways in which he has been using it and I'll say I don't agree with every time mm-hmm. but I certainly appreciate I appreciate the effort Mm-hmm. Dean Dory, thank you so much for this. Honestly, like I, I, I don't want to be, too, I don't want to be gushing too much, but I, I just need you to understand how grateful I am for your time. Like I really. Well, I'm grateful for you for creating this platform because you know I, 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 I miss, I, I miss the eclipse. <laughs> I know. But if this becomes in a a COVID, you know, social distancing safe uh, way. To- <laughs> engage in the um again the sense of of place um making 
right yeah. place making and place staking right understanding that we have stake in these places like bay street mm. or <laughs> university avenue or um all the places that we are that um it's really important to be able to create a platform for these perspectives to be heard and shared um so that we don't feel like we're alone for those of us who are in these again super token spaces mm -hmm. um for those of us who are um trying to figure out where our influence lies to be able to hear the stories and strategies of others exactly. um and for those who need to learn like you know for them to to learn you know learn how to be a better ally so i appreciate the fact that you've made this happen it's going to be um it's going to be i think powerfully transformative just because of the deep connections and relationships that you've established um within the city and so that people will listen and hear right they'll listen and hear in a way that um if someone else was doing it they may not so i appreciate the fact that you're really doing this thank you and and i i, I hope we'll be able to meet again and have another conversation because this was just the tip of the iceberg. That's the thing when you're old, right? Stop. Stop. I was like, can you sum up your life, your career? It's like, I almost, have, I almost have 50 years of that. No, I can't sum up. So. so much about the conversation about Black people on Bay Street is about Black people leaving. So it's wonderful to have a conversation with someone who is a leader in this Bay Street ecosystem about what it takes to stay. And clearly, as you heard from Dean Dory, she's all about making space. I wanna thank Dean Dory once more for sharing her story. I wanna thank Keston Cornwall and Stacey Hilton for their insights as well. I wanna thank you, the listeners, for, for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe. Please tell a friend. Connect with me on Twitter or IG at Presence by Naki O. Share any thoughts or questions or topic ideas you'd like to hear on another episode. And remember, take space, make space. This is Naki Osute signing off. Peace. <laughs>